So last Sunday, we began our final series through the Gospel of Luke, our third of three longer series through, through Luke, and we're in chapter 19. And Luke begins his account with this in Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it, always, so it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So Theophilus was the one who helped fund Luke's careful investigation and account of the life of Jesus. Luke was a physician himself, so he's a detailed guy, and that reflects that, that detailed nature reflects in this gospel because it's the most thorough uh, accounts of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So from Luke 9, 51 to chapter 19, it gives the account of Jesus providentially moving toward Jerusalem and his final days of his earthly life. Last week, we picked up the story on Palm Sunday as he nears the city of Jerusalem and enters it the Sunday before Easter. Today, the passage that we're looking at takes place on Monday of the Passion Week. Two different stories, but both remind us and reveal to us the good authority of King Jesus. In both sections, we'll see Jesus confront the authority of the Jewish leaders of the day. So I want to read both accounts and then we'll get into them. So Luke 19, starting in verse 45 in the CSB translation, says this, He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. But they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. And then starting in chapter 20, one day, as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, Why didn't you believe him? If we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin And Jesus said to them, verse 8, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Throughout my years of following and trusting in Jesus, I've realized over and over, oftentimes, that the good authority of King Jesus confronts my supposed authority. His good and loving authority as the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, challenges my so-called authority. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing, because I know this will come as a big, big shock to you, but, but I don't possess infinite and eternal wisdom. And while that is the most obvious statement you will hear today, do you know what my flesh wants me to think? That I do. That my earthly and extremely limited wisdom I possess is actually better than his eternal wisdom. It's utter nonsense. And yet my flesh, when it hears a passage such as these from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44. But I tell you, love your enemies, Jesus says, and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, but I don't want to do that, Jesus. 
I don't want to love people who have been hurtful toward me. And the good authority of Jesus confronts my authority. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either, either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. Yeah, but my flesh thinks I can. My flesh thinks I'll be the first person in, in the history of humanity that I can both store up treasure in, in, on earth and store up treasure on, in heaven and call that wholehearted worship of the Lord and the king's good authority confronts my authority. Matthew 6, 33 and 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Yeah, but my flesh thinks, no, I, by worrying about things out of my control, I can find rest there. And the king's good authority confronts my authority. Like my dad used to tell me as a kid, yabbat is not a word. And it's not like it's just the words written in red in the Gospels that confront my flesh. This is the word of the Lord that is upon our laps right now. His words to us. And according to Psalm 119, His words are righteous and true. According to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture not just words written in red, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This desire to rule our own way of life is in all of us, not just me. We're born with it. At the core of Adam and Eve's failure in the garden was a heart attitude that rejected the good authority of the Lord. They believed the lies of the devil in the form of a serpent who led them to believe that a self-ruled life was the path to joy and freedom. So we are born with a sin nature, prone to resist his good authority, and we are born into a nation, a nation who I love, a nation who I'm grateful for. I'm grateful that God providentially placed me and my household and my generations into this nation, but we are all born into a nation that at its inception in the American Revolution celebrated the phrase, don't tread on me, on the Gadsden flag, which ironically has a serpent on it. This is part of our nation's ethos. No matter your political leanings, because interestingly enough, the phrase, don't tread on me, has been adopted by both the right and the left to fit the, whatever agenda they're trying to push forward. Because that desire, that attitude of don't tread on me is in all of us. Me included, again, as one person said, most people want authority, few people want to be under it. And let me say this as a side note, but one you need to hear. As a pastor, I am under authority. The more years I go in ministry, the more stories I hear of pastors blowing up their church, blowing up their households, blowing up their families, because they are resistant to being under the authority of a plurality of qualified godly elders. They want to be an isolated island unto themselves, and that thinking goes nowhere good or godly. Even among our elder team, there should be, and praise God that there is, an attitude of humble, mutual submission to one another. Because no one here is the chief shepherd. Jesus Christ alone is the chief shepherd. He holds that title alone. 
And so this desire to resist authority is in all of us, from our, our nature to our nurture. But for those of us who are in Christ, who've been made new in Christ, our resistant heart of stone has been replaced with a repentant heart of tender flesh. Our sin has been atoned for by the blood of Jesus. We're living for Him now, not us. And so we are sons and daughters of the Father, co-heirs with Christ. And so we are to be marked by a way of life that is humble toward His good and loving authority. And notice I keep emphasizing His good authority. Because what we see on a continual, nearly daily basis is is a world full of corrupt, self-centered, prideful authority. Authority that is often motivated and steered by, by selfish motives. So when we hear the word authority, we automatically, nearly all of us, associate corrupt, bad, evil, selfish, because that's what we see in our world. But this is Jesus we're talking about. Jesus, sinless in every way, born of a virgin, tempted in every way, yet without sin, altogether pure and good, and, and loved us so much that He died for us. We can trust Him, my friends. We can trust Him. His authority is good and for us, for our joy, for our life, for our freedom in Him. Are you resisting His authority? Where in your life are you dismissing His his good authority? Where are you, whether you're verbally saying it or not, maybe your heart is full of it, but where are you saying, yabats, 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 in your life right now? In this first section Luke gives a shortened version of Jesus disrupting the temple. Matthew 21 gives a longer account, including him turning up tables. So Matthew 19, or I'm sorry, Luke 19, 45 through 48 again. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes. And the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. So last week we looked at the Palm Sunday account and Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. We see the compassion, the mercy of King Jesus. Here we see the righteousness of Jesus. We always want to be letting the Scriptures define for us who Jesus is and never us, His created people, defining who He is as the creator. I believe sometimes we have this image of Jesus in our heads, one that we've not taken from Scripture, but we've kind of concluded in our own thinking. And one temptation is to make Jesus out to be a Lord who never calls wrong wrong, or never loves us enough to want to to, to sanctify or change us. He never rebukes, corrects, or calls out sin. It's camp counselor Jesus, flowing locks, guitar in hand around the fire, singing it's all cool dude you do you you do you right as created people we don't define who he is we don't define who he is we are the created people create the creator defines who he is the word continually reveals to us the nature and character of jesus and as his people we must grow in the knowledge of our god so that we don't fall into these false perceptions because false perceptions don't lead us to a life of, that glorifies God. It leads us to a life of glorifying ourselves. Jesus is righteously angry here. 
and yet he's not sinful in his anger. King Jesus is righteous, therefore calls out what is unrighteous. He recognizes when things are unjust, gets angry about it. Jesus is truth, calls out what is false. And what is happening in the temple right now is not just. It's not true. It's not leading people to a a greater love of the Lord or of neighbor. There is another recorded time that Jesus cleaned house in the temple. That's in John 2, happening much earlier in his ministry. That's where Jesus makes a whip. The second one, roughly three years after the first one. In that first one, Jesus disrupts the temple and then leaves town. This time, he's not going to leave town. He's causing this chaos that's happening in the temple, displaying his authority, and he's not leaving town because now is the time for him providentially to lay down his life. So where conflict, conflict escalates, it's going to land on a cross on Good Friday. He knows that. So Jews have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration that is happening this week. And as a result, a couple things are often taking place when they've arrived. Money is being exchanged. Roman coins for Jewish coins and vice versa. And also what is happening is people are purchasing animals like doves and pigeons and sheep to sacrifice during the Passover festival. So for convenience sake, you traveled light and you bought those things when you got to your destination rather than traveling with them. And none of that is inherently bad. Jesus is not against the buying and selling of things. Jesus is instead calling out the unrighteousness that is taking place. Price gouging is happening. Fees are being put on these currency exchanges that are taking advantage of people, including the poor. You've got the pigeon guy saying, pretty pigeon over here, pretty pigeon over here, right? And he's charging 20 times more than what you could find outside the temple. Early in our marriage, Heather and I went to Universal Studios with some friends in January. It was colder than we thought when we got there. A little rainy. We didn't come prepared. So what did I have to do? I had to go to the gift shop and buy myself the original Universal Studios sweatshirt. Okay, I had to ante up for that bad boy. I have no idea what it cost. All I know, it was freezing, and so I had to buy a sweatshirt, and I also wore that thing for years afterwards, representing and marketing for Universal Studios because I was going to get my money's worth. In the temple is a place where God-honoring worship and prayer are to take place. And instead, corruption and dishonesty reigns instead. The spirit of the market was prone to abuse and not love, deceit rather than integrity. King Jesus sees selfishness happening in a place that is intended to be a place of God-honoring worship and prayer. Jesus quotes two Old Testament scriptures there in verse 46. He quotes Jeremiah 7.11 and how the temple had become a den of thieves. Jeremiah 7 is one of the prophet jeremiah's most scathing sermons he's blasting the unfaithfulness and idolatry of the people their failure to live justly including turning a place of worship into a place of thieves you've turned it into a place jesus is saying into a false worship of money and self rather than the true worship of the true lord he also quotes isaiah 56 7 that the temple is to be a house of prayer for the Lord. 
And what gets recorded in Isaiah 56, but not here, is that the temple was not just a house of prayer, but it was a house of prayer for the nations. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. So these price-gouging merchants operated in the outer courts of the temple where it was the only place where the Gentiles could come and pray. So because of them, it left no room for the Gentiles to come to the Lord. The nations were being neglected because of the greed of the supposed godly. And so it wasn't just the selfishness and dishonesty of man that Jesus was angry about. It was also that all this marketplace activity was keeping Gentiles from coming and praying. As one commentator said, in the uproar of buying and selling and bargaining and auctioneering, prayer was impossible. And in a matter of days, King Jesus will lay down his life, not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile, you and I, so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation could be saved through faith alone and by grace alone. From Genesis 12, Old Testament on, we see God's heart for the nations and the nations would be reached. And here in the outer court where the nations are to be welcomed, instead they are being hindered. This moment at the temple exposes the spiritual condition of the people. How far they have wandered and strayed from the Lord's commands to love Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love their neighbor as themselves. Verse 47 and 48 again. Every day He was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. So the conflict is escalating. Jesus has authority over what takes place here in the temple because he's King Jesus. And he's turning of tables and the running of merchants out of the temple was a very public display of that authority and it will lead to his death. The Jewish leaders are furious. All these scenes are leading to the acceleration toward a cross on Good Friday. And moving to the next story, Luke 20, verses 1 and 2. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? Teaching the people, proclaiming the good news. This was the ongoing mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost, to welcome home the sinner, to give them a new identity in Christ. In Luke 4, Jesus announces his mission, quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He says this, starting in verse 18 of Luke 4, again, in a moment of teaching, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was the mission of Jesus, and it continues to be His mission, loved ones. His, his mission, His commission to go and make disciples, to be His ambassadors and witnesses so that more and more captives of sin might be set free and the spiritually blind, that their eyes might be illuminated and opened up to eternal realities. His mission continues. If you're in Christ, this is the mission that only exists this side of heaven. Let's be found faithful. And if you're, if you're not trusting in Jesus yet, if you have yet to repent and believe the good news, please hear me. He's still proclaiming the good news to your heart and soul and your life. 
the good news that while we were born in a desperate sin disease situation, that by His wounds you can be healed. Though you've wandered, you can return to the Good Shepherd. The good news that through the cross and resurrection, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Give Him your life today, loved ones. You're not here, you're not listening, you're not watching by accident. The chief priests and the scribes of the elders came and said to Him, Tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? By what authority are you doing these things? Meaning, you're coming into the temple and causing utter chaos. You're flipping tables upside down. Who gave you that authority? Who gave you that authority to deliver the demon-possessed person to restore sight to the blind and physical ability to the lame to feed thousands? And listen, the Jewish leaders here, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they're not asking these questions because they're actually concerned about listening or knowing the truth. We already know that because, because Luke records in Luke 19, verse 47 again, that they're looking for a way to kill him. They're asking these questions to try to catch Jesus in that, aha, gotcha moment. You're wrong. We're right. You're not in authority. We are in authority. So they're wrongly assuming that they sit in the position of authority. That they were God's rightly appointed religious authority and they were going to bow to no one. So anyone who challenged that, that authority that they had, was wrong. Including this Jesus of Nazareth claiming to be the Messiah. See, Jesus didn't bow to anyone on earth. He only does the will of the Father, not the will of man, including these leaders. So he wasn't doing ministry under the authority of priests and the elders and the scribes, which is causing their whole works-based religious structure and system to be disrupted. And even though it is silly and pointless to try to argue with an all-knowing, all-wise, everywhere present in this world, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, these, sa these leaders want to step in the batting box. They want to take in that bat. It won't go well for them. They said to him, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? Jesus answers their question with a question which is classic Jesus. He's not trying to evade them. He's trying to expose them. Expose their hypocrisy. Expose their, their, their selfish motives that intended on finding a way to kill Jesus. So where's your authority from, Jesus? He tells them, before I answer anything about me, you need to deal with who John was. And who is this John that Jesus is speaking of? Well, it's who is known as John the Baptist. Baptist, not denomination. Baptism, or Baptist, because he was John the baptizer. He baptized people. And what he did, and what, what did he say about who Jesus was? Well, John was the last of the line of prophets from the Old Testament to point forward to a coming Messiah, Jesus. He was the relative of Jesus, and his role in the kingdom was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, to prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. His public ministry began before Jesus' public ministry began because he was preparing a way for others to receive and trust in Jesus. He proclaimed the good news and baptized those who repented and put their faith in the Lord. 
John was a man under authority, but it was under the authority of the Lord. Sent by the Lord as a prophet, he wasn't acting under the authority of the Jewish leaders who he called out for their hard hearts and unrepentant attitudes. He lived in submission to the Lord Jesus, who he said was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When people began to think that John was the Messiah, he humbly said, I baptize you with water, but one, Jesus, who is more powerful than I am, is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so Jesus is asking the religious leaders. So when John was baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins, was his authority that his ministry had Was that authority from humans or from heaven? See, the religious leaders intended to catch Jesus in a quandary to to put them into, to put Jesus into this situation, but now it's them caught in a predicament in the words of Michael Scott. Well, 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 how the turntables. Verse 5, they discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us. Because they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He, Jesus gives them a multiple choice question. They know they're stuck. If they say from heaven, they have to admit they're wrong. Because they rejected John's ministry and the good news he proclaimed. John had told them they were in need of repentance. That they had sin in their life, their good works could not atone for or cover their sin, John said they were in need of a Messiah. And that Messiah had come, and His name is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So if John was from heaven, then he was right about Jesus. If His authority came from heaven, he's right about Jesus. That means these religious leaders are wrong. And Jesus had all authority as the Son of God. If they say John's authority was from human origin, which is the choice that they believe, they actually believe this, but if they say that publicly, they know they're going to to be stoned. That the people who love John are going to reject these leaders and they are cowards before public opinion. So they can't admit they're wrong, option A. They can't look bad, option B, which makes for terrible, terrible leadership, by the way. Just terrible leadership. So they play dumb, make up option C, and say, well, we don't know. And if they can't answer this question about John the Baptist, they can't answer it about Jesus. If they can't tell the difference between a prophet of God and a mere man, then how will they discern who the Son of God is? And Jesus won't answer them. He's saying, you're not concerned about the truth, so I'm not going to validate your question with an answer. Again, Jesus is not evading their question by asking a question. Rather, his question to them, it is exposing their self-righteousness and arrogant hearts. Their non-answer is the answer that reveals their hearts. It reveals their unwillingness to choose humility and trust in anyone other than themselves. Their unwillingness to confess to wrong or sin in their life. Their unwillingness to bow a knee to anyone other than themselves. In short, the Pharisees were unwilling to let Jesus confront their authority. The worship team could come up. May such unwillingness 
not describe our hearts and not describe our way of life because we're God's people. We've been made new. And when, when we are prone to this, when, when that stubborn spirit or self-centered fleshly spirit is exposed in us, when the Spirit brings that to light, this resistant attitude toward the One who saved us by, by grace alone, may we be quick to repent, my brothers and sisters, to turn back to the altogether good and loving authority of Jesus who is the fullness of grace and truth and whose Word we can wholeheartedly trust. Jesus, the One with all authority in heaven and on earth who selflessly and sacrificially compelled by love laid down His life so that we could receive eternal life, so that we could be made new, so that we could no longer live for ourselves, but for Him, His name, His mission, His glory alone. Father, Lord, Your Word tells us that You oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. So enable us by Your Spirit and grace to pursue a humble, teachable attitude and a posture toward You that would lead to our good and Your glory that you would lead us toward joy and freedom found in you alone. Empower us as your people, your sons and daughters, to have lives marked by tender and teachable humility. And where we have and are resisting you, may we turn back, may we trust in you and you alone. We thank you that your authority is not corrupt or evil in any way, for you're altogether good, righteous, true, and holy. Thank you that your authority is good and loving, that your ways and wisdom are higher than our own. Thank you that you are for us, not against us, that your commands are not burdensome, but life-giving instead. Thank you that your transforming grace abounds toward the humble. We trust you, Jesus. Our life is yours, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. That's the kind of authority our father has for his children, an authority that cares for his kids.